perfect. Hey everyone, it's uh, David Barnett and we're back with another holiday chat. Uh, this time I'm talking with Tim and Tim has, uh, has been in business and Tim has bought and sold a business and Tim has started a business. Most importantly, of course, Tim's been a student of Business Buyer Advantage. Tell me, what did you think of the program, Tim? Um, I thought it was perfect. I was, I was looking for something that would kind of consolidate everything into a simple, uh, e easy to follow um, course. And it was exactly what I was looking for. Good. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. I mean, lots of people have done it and uh, almost entirely the feedback has been has been positive and and it's always it's always good for me anyway to hear that that uh that people are enjoying it and it's delivering on what what people want um let's talk about though your situation um so you had sent me a few details um when we had made the appointment and maybe we'll just we'll just go over some of that so so people know what we're talking about you have managed to accumulate quite a few resources you've got um you say here about 170,000 in a 401k plan. You got $210,000 of home equity. You have access to $150,000 from different credit card, um, credit card balances that are unused. And what, what is it that you want to talk to me about? You, you have some questions about how you can use some of these resources to buy a business. Is that it? Um, yeah, I've been looking at uh, at the option of buying a business uh, very seriously, and I I keep running you know calculations in my head, and and I know every deal that that I work on is going to be unique, um, but at the same time I I I'm not sure of next steps what to take, and I compare my my current um, I'm actually employed right now. Mm -hmm. So I'm comparing that as uh, uh, with a Banta, as we've talked about in the in the course, which is my best alternative to a negotiated deal. And mm -hmm. right now, that's just keeping my job, and and uh, which which pays well. And you know, I'm probably looking at about a hundred and sixty thousand um, dollars Banta that I'd, I'd be leaving, and making sure that I use the resources I have to actually improve my situation. Um, is maybe in in the back of my mind, I'm wondering what the likelihood of of finding a better situation even would be. Okay, so so let me ask you this then, just begin with: um, Is it all about the money for you? And and the reason uh, why I ask that is, I would say half the people that I that I end up working with who want to buy a business, it's they would be happy earning less if they could get more freedom in their life or maybe reduce their, you know, I don't know what you do for that 160 grand. Do you have, do they basically own all your time or what's it like? Um, I guess yes and no, maybe about 50, 50. So it's very flexible. Um, I'd still have to put in the time and get the results. Um, and it's, it's doing some business development. A lot of it I do from home. Uh, so it's, it's a very comfortable job. Um, and I hear that for a lot from family and friends that, you know, I'm in a really good spot. Um, so I do want more. 
um, mm-hmm. and and more money is 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 definitely high on the priority list. Um, but figuring out how to do that in a way that um, can improve my my situation. I don't mind working more, um, but I. I'm conscious of the good gig that I have going on. And so is your role some kind of sales role? Is that what you're doing? Uh, um, yeah, I support uh, salespeople. Okay. And help them sell better, right? Okay. So if you were going to, if you were going to buy a business, is this one of the ways that you would be contributing to help improve the business is, is through improving sales and the sales process? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, um, what have you done so far to start looking for opportunities? Um, so I've been on the bizbysell.com uh, mm-hmm. website, um, quite a bit kind of looking for, you know, what would be of interest to me. Um, I have a background in electrical engineering and I, some of the opportunities, you know, maybe very lucrative, like, um, insurance seems to be, uh, something that keeps coming up and where there's a lot of financing available, um, by third parties that are very interested and, you know, maybe 5% down, I could get into an insurance broker business, but I start thinking about that and I think, man, that, that feels so so boring, nothing wrong with the career, fantastic, um, and maybe exciting for other personalities. Um, so I start thinking about what kind of things are interesting to me. Um, and, and things that keep coming to the top are like manufacturing. Um, somebody's making aerospace, uh, parts. Um, someone has an electrical, uh, component manufacturing that they do. Um, medical labs, things that are are technical in nature keep kind of rising to the top. So definitely what I'd be doing is is interesting uh, to me. Um, And then, of course, reaching out to some brokers. And uh, we all know that every broker I've talked to so far is all hype about how fantastic the opportunity is and and everything. And I've gotten to the point where... um, a broker has actually sent me some additional details of of the business uh, income statements and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, so very early on in the process of of identifying a business. Okay, so you know just just to touch briefly on what you said about insurance offices, um, I I did have a hand in a transaction um, for an insurance brokerage property and casualty insurance, and Yes, it is possible to get financing. It usually comes from insurance companies. And the reason why they are interested in helping people buy insurance brokerages is usually because they want to defend their position in that brokerage. So if, if uh, 60% of the contracts in a given office are being written under one insurance company and somebody wants to buy that office, that insurance company is interested in, in keeping the, the, the market share that they have in that office. Um, so financing is more readily available. In my experience, it's available to people who have experience in the industry because they want to know that, that you're going to be able to run the office well. But here's the, 
Here's the other flip side to this, particularly in the insurance brokerage business, is that they sell for an incredibly high price. Um, and that is because a lot of people who buy insurance simply renew every year. And so they have, tend to have very stable cash flows, which means that they sell for incredibly, in, in fact, the, the research I did when I was working on this one deal showed that they sold for multiples of the commission revenue, not multiples of cash flow. So it, mm-hmm. very, very high prices. Um, and, and yes, there is financing available. Um, so for an industry outsider, it may not be as readily available as it is to somebody who's, who's already in that space. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, just, just to raise this point, there are a couple of industries out there that happen to have, um, financing available outside of what we normally talk about in business brokerage. Uh, and I don't know if this holds true anymore, but um, there was a period maybe six, seven, eight years ago where GE Capital maybe was one of the big finance, one of the big non-bank finance companies out there um, had a special program, for example, for Subway restaurants. And because they had created a financing program specific to that business, they actually were, were able to analyze the data, the internal reporting data that Subway requires franchisees to submit. And they were making loan decisions based on that. And so it made that particular type of financing easier too. Um, and and there, there's probably other examples out there. Um, so, so basically what you're saying is you're looking for a business that has north of 160000 of earnings for you if you end up borrowing money, you're going to have to service debt, which means you're really looking for something with an SDE, probably about a quarter million or so, right? Right. right. Yep, exactly. Okay. So the, the business that you found that you were talking to the broker, was it in that kind of space? Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, kind of just what I've been doing and you can give me feedback on this too, is I've just been sorting biz by or yeah, biz by sell.com by earnings and trying to be north of, of two fifty and um and I don't mind going higher than that as well. It seems like a lot of the listings are the most inflated numbers possible. Mm-hmm. Um so just anything north of that. So, so yeah, exa- exactly. And 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 then figuring out okay if I get a business that's that's that seems like a decent sized business if we have two hundred and fifty thousand in in SDE, um, what I mean that's going to cost what seven hundred fifty thousand maybe a million, and am I going to have enough money to to be able to pull that off and um, as far as working capital needs as far as the down payment goes. Um, et cetera. And, and, and maybe I need to be making more than, uh, more than that even to make it worth it to leave the 160. If I'm just jumping over and, and getting 160 after all the debt service and everything's paid, I just essentially took out my 401k and, and home equity to put myself in a, in a position that I already had. So getting more than that was, is kind of important. So maybe, maybe even an SDE pushing up to, to half a million dollars, um, is, is, is kind of what's been in my mind. 
Okay. So, so basically if, if you start to, and once you start to get up to that half a million of SDE, you, you probably actually are starting to get closer to the half a million of EBITDA as well. Um, maybe. And so, so as you move yourself up, up further up that, that cash flow scale, the chances of bumping into the bigger buying competitors, the private equity people and stuff starts to become uh, more problematic, right? Because, because you start to get into the space where they may be looking, depending on what industry it's in or whatnot. Um, you know, my big concern for people is that if you, you know, let's, let's, let's use a number like 400K for an SDE. Okay. So at 400K, you start to talk about a price of a business, you know, that's probably going to be on the low end. Like, well, I mean, you're, you're talking about things like small manufacturing and um, electronic services and maybe custom short run assembly. Is that the kind of the thing you're talking about? Uh, yeah, that's what's been interesting so far. Yeah. So, so you're probably looking at like three times SDE or so. So you're up to 1.2 million, even if you were to finance it under, you know, the current SBA 7A rules, uh, cause you're in the States, um, and you put 10% down, um, even if you put 5% down, the seller held 5%, if the numbers worked, which would require a, you know, a cash flow forecast, your, your down payment, you know, would be 60 grand. Um, and then we would have to consider working capital. But I, I mean, I could see how you could make this work without invading the 401k, which is, you know, my attitude is that, you know, if your business doesn't work out, you probably still want to retire one day. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Sure. And so if you take money out of the 401k, you've, you face all the withhold, all the tax implications of that. Um, or if you end up doing the, the rollover program that's offered by some of the people, some companies out there that do this as a service, um, then a lot of other things get dictated for you. You know, you end up having to do a C, a C corporation. Um, and then there's a lot of other rules and things that, that are applied to your situation that you always have to be cognizant of, which is why people hire ser- these special service companies to manage this for them. So they don't run afoul of any of the rules. So, you know, as far as operating capital is concerned, if you bought a deal in it, if you bought a business in a share transaction, then some of that operating capital should be included. If you bought it as an asset deal, then it really comes down to examining what is included in the asset deal and what is not. And so if it's a business that has a lot of inventory, often in an asset sale, inventory is part of what you're buying, which an inventory is part of operating capital. Um, but if it's not a big inventory intensive business, then it comes down to who are the customers and how do they pay you and who are the suppliers and how do you pay them? So, you know, in, in a lot of this, the type of businesses that you're describing, you would be expected to offer certain terms to your buyers. Now, I, I happen to know someone who just bought a business like that, a custom wiring assembly. And, um, the the types of companies that are their customers are the big manufacturers of electronic goods and the, this particular company is in the states but they do test runs with them so they might 
call these guys up and say, we want you to manufacture 400 units, which we're going to test in the field. And if it's good, then we're going to have them made in China kind of thing. And, and they're actually very good at paying. Like they, they pay within 30 days kind of thing because for these, uh, many of these companies are just behemoth organizations for them. It's, it's not a man, a matter of cash flow. These are very small purchases to those guys. Um, but I mean, you'd have to examine the company and see are people paying in 30 days or are they paying in 45 to 60 days? And then on the flip side, who are you buying from? What kind of payment terms would you have? And so you, you have to look at it on a case by case basis. But if you're doing in order to get a business with a 400 K SDE, let's say you have to be doing say three and a half million dollars of sales, right? And if I take out my calculator, um, 3.5 million in sales. And if we um, assume that everyone will pay you in 30 days and so divide that by 12, you know, that could indicate a requirement of three, almost 300 grand just to support receivables. Right. And if, if our suppliers are letting us pay, you know, say in 30 or maybe a little bit longer, 30 to 60 days from our suppliers and our, you know, you'd have to make a guess here about the cost of goods sold. Maybe the, the, the material component of the cost of goods sold might be 30 or 40%. Um, Maybe a third of this could be offset by payables. So you still need about a $200,000 way of financing just the receivables. Um, Receivables though are easily financeable. So maybe you get a bank line of credit specifically for that, which means that, you know, at the end of the day, maybe you only need, you know, 50 to 75,000 in real cash of your own outside of what you can normally leverage with the bank line of credit and the, and the payables. So it's, it's case by case, but, but it may not be as bad as you think. Right. I guess is what I'm trying to do. Yeah, yeah, no, those are great examples. I um, a lot more encouraging than numbers. I was I was coming up with similar, like, okay, I need three hundred k for thirty days, and you know maybe I need to come up with eighty percent of that or something, which starts making me wonder if it's if it's even possible. But um, the numbers we're talking about seem very doable for my situation. Yeah, and and the you know. If you're going to buy a business that big with the resources you have, then it's almost certainly going to have to be under that SBA 7A program because you really can't go much further than the five, you know, percent down if you're talking about a business that big, right? And so, right. Um, one of the things about that program is that they ask for whatever, you know, equity or assets you have access to. Um, and so if you were to do a HELOC of some kind to get your down payment out of your home equity, and then the SBA people asked you to sign, you know, to basically put up your house as security on the loan, well, there wouldn't be any equity left. So you would, you would be putting yourself in a position where you didn't have anything more to offer them, which is, is <laughs> it kind of protects Good. you. Like, <laughs> like if you, if you took the money out of your 401k and then they asked to put a lien on your house, well, then you've actually risked more. Mm. Right. Right. And so the risking both instead of one. Yeah. You, you, you always want to be cognizant of what, 
what could be sheltered or protected if things went wrong and, and what they can and can't ask for as far as security. Um, you know, and then, and then your credit cards, um, you know, typically that's a higher finance cost. And, and so I wouldn't want to see you borrow much against that. But if there was a gap in your operating capital within the business, people do successfully use things like a personal credit card as a stopgap or emergency kind of thing to dip into, especially if the business cash flow is flowing. So here, here's what I mean by that is if you're doing business and you're submitting invoices every month and people are paying you regularly, there's this constant flow of money. So if you're $40,000 short, you can use that personal credit card to buy things, but, but next month you're going to need to buy more. And because money is flowing in, you can pay off the credit card fully within that 30 days while you're charging it back up again. Right. And th- this is what companies do with, with, um, with tools like a corporate Amex program. Like I used to work for American express and this is what I taught people how to do is we basically would give them a revolving credit program tied to uh, a card account, which they could charge up money through the month. And then they had until the end of the next month to pay it off. Well, they would pay the card off in full every month while they were charging it back up again. And so, so it was paid in full every month, which meant they were, they had access to this, revolving flowing credit, but they were never facing finance charges because they weren't carrying a balance. The whole thing was just flipping right. over all the time. So, so the, the credit card availability is something that um, you could make use of in the business, particularly for the operating capital, if you needed to. And if things were successful in the business and you were able to, you know, um, you know, measure or restrain what you were taking out, you'd probably be out of that position relatively quickly. Like in a, in a year or two, you, maybe you would be able to accumulate enough of your earnings in the business to not have to do that anymore. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, that's a, a good point with um, making sure the business is profitable and cash flow is flowing and then being able to use the credit cards in that example. Yeah. It it really, it really does come down to, you know, a successful business with good profit is going to cost more than a company having trouble. But if you, if you have that track record of success and good cash flow, it, you know, you're going to pay more for the business, but it opens the door to so many other different tools and things that you can do that ultimately in my mind makes it less risky. You know, even though you're putting in a lot of money, there's not as much risk there because you're acquiring something that that is working, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'm starting to see a you know a path forward where uh, my my banter, my best alternative to a negotiated deal, um, could actually be improved. You know, in my current situation. Um, so my next way I'm thinking about this, and you can give me feedback on this as well is okay well yeah i'm interested in a in a kind of a wide variety of of areas um which one is going to be the most lucrative as far as is there a way to know in general what types of businesses what multiples types of businesses go for you know obviously the lower the multiple um 
the faster the payback in my mind. Um, is there a way to kind of narrow my list down based on industry multiples, I guess? Well, you know, as a very, very basic notion, the, the more that a business can be replicated and the less investment in stuff, tangible stuff, means that the multiplier is lower. So this is why like a service business, um, you know, would typically sell for a lower multiple than a business where you need a lot of capital equipment for manufacturing and, you know, special tools and stuff. And because that investment in stuff is a barrier to entry, it, it makes other people think twice about trying to set up shop to, to compete with you. Um, and then the ultimate bump up. So, so those service businesses could sell for less than two times SDE, right? And, and if you start to get a little bit of capital equipment and stuff, uh, you know, and a service business, maybe you think about, um, you know, anything in, you know, like a restaurant or, or something like that. In, in the world you're considering, it could be people who do testing, for example, of electronic assemblies, right? So they're, they're, they have tools, but they don't have big capital equipment and they're providing a service to someone, but other people could set up a business similar to that quite easily. So, so that would sell for a lower multiple. Then you get into a business that has more capital equipment, a bigger investment, and that in your mind, you should be thinking about something like a machine shop or an assembly business that maybe um, has more equipment, but they're still basically doing what other people are asking them to do. So they're competing for contracts for work with other people that are similar and you know, the, the, the pricing could be something that people are looking at, you know, the next step up is actually owning designs or copyrights or design patents for specific things that other people cannot make because you control it. So this would be that if you get into a business where they have their own brand of widget that they're making that, other people are selling for them or people are ordering direct. And it, so it's when you get into the space where you can limit other people's ability to copy you, that's when the multiple will take another big jump up because your profitability, you should be able to get a better margin because you're the only one with the, you know, XYZ brand widget. Um, and you can defend that margin because other people can't just rip you off. And so, so when you're looking at these businesses, um, and, and this is where the private equity guys will sometimes dip their toe below the normal limits of what they tend to look at, is if they can acquire something that has control over a product, um, especially if they own other businesses that might be able to help grow the sales of that item. I kind of meandered there, but does that does that sort of help you understand about as far as the multiples go? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I just wrote a note basically that um, the higher the barriers to mm -hmm. entry, the higher the multiples, the more value is there for the business owner. Like let's, let's think basically what a multiple is. And, and this is why businesses are priced this way. You buy a business, like the example we were using with the working capital, I mean, you'll probably finance it over seven or 10 years, right? So, so 
immediately you think I'm buying the business, I'm paying for it over 10 years. But if you buy a business with a 3x multiple, what you are essentially saying is that everything in the market and in this business are so secure and steady that I believe that for the next three years, nothing much is going to change. And so I'm willing to put up the money to invest in this business and I will wait for three years for the money to come back before I make a profit. Right. And so when you, when you talk about it like that, it becomes very clear why people want to pay 1.6 times SDE for a restaurant <laughs> because it's, it's a really risky business, right? Gambling that everything will be just as it is in three years is, is very difficult for that kind of business. But if you're the only maker of a certain product, then you can start to imagine that, yeah, you know what? This product's been selling well for the past 10 years. Should it be selling well for the next four and a half? Probably. Right. And that's, and that's how you're able to justify these longer um, investment periods or which, which translates into a higher purchase price based on the multiple because people are willing to agree that the future um, probability of it continuing as it is will stretch further. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and so uh, rather than me going to a database somewhere um, and trying to find, oh, what's the best multiple, I can, with this information you're sharing, I can kind of know, okay, a, a risky business, a service-based business, they're just going to have lower multiples. And if that's the kind of business I want, I can kind of know that it's going to be lower um, versus, you know, a business that has equipment and maybe some expertise, uh, maybe a mid-range multiple. And if that's the kind of business I want, then I can know what to expect versus a, a business with some sort of patent protectant uh, mm. way of, of producing things um, that will have higher multiples. The, you know, getting back to some of the stuff that was covered in business buyer advantage. I, I think that number one, it begins with self-assessment, what you are interested in. Um, and then when you, when you start looking at businesses that you're interested in, the very first thing you should try to uncover is if there's some kind of inefficiency in their sales process, because that's the expertise that you bring to the table. Right. And you know, you pay for what you get in the business, but the reason you buy a particular business is because of the future. And so if you find a business that interests you and then you can see that there are better ways they could be doing things, particularly in sales, but they're still making money. Well, well now you can buy that business and then you can apply your own expertise to make it better. And that's where you get the good deal where two years afterwards, now it's performing even better. Um, and that doesn't change the price. You, you paid for what you got when you bought it. And, and the interest in the business is really important um, because so often you know, when we're talking about a small business, even at the level that, that you and I are discussing, you know, a business in the electronics, assembly, manufacturing, et cetera, space that does three and a half million in sales, still might not have more than 15 or 20 employees. And so 
the, the energy and the culture that's created is going to be influenced in a huge way by you. And so you need to know that it's going to be something exciting and interesting for you. Um, because if you're, you know, you could uncover a great opportunity in, in uh, you know, floral arrangement or something. But if you're not excited by that, the, your lack of energy will end up having an impact on the numbers of the business. Right. Yeah. That makes uh, a ton of sense. Yeah. And, and my, and my quality of life as well. Yeah. You, uh, you want to look forward negatively to get in there every day, you know? Yeah. Okay. So um, an- another topic I was trying to think through a little bit is what should I be budgeting for transaction costs and how are those normally handled if, if they are lumped in as part of the purchase price um, or do I need to be ready to pay um, lawyers and accountants and business valuation experts, etc. Yeah, sure. So, you know, um, as someone asked me the other, this qu- kind of question the other day, it's, it, it's based on the type of transaction and the size and the fees that you pay for closing costs should be thought of like insurance premiums. So when in the, in the normal process that I teach in business buyer advantage to buy a business, you work out a deal with the seller in um, you know, the, the form that's included in the course. And you do that without the help of the accountant and the lawyer, because the, the form is designed in such a way that after you have worked out your deal, you can then go to your attorney and lawyer. And if they see that you've done something stupid, they, they can cancel the deal, right? So you create your deal, you get something on paper, and then you go to your accountant and you ask him to help you start with the due diligence. Um, and it needs to be someone who, who knows how to do due diligence, and, which is not every accountant, but you ask the right questions, you make sure you have the right person on your team. And what you want to do with the accountant is you want to go for the lowest hanging fruit in terms of discovering problems that are going to want you not make you not want to do the deal. So, so any, every industry is kind of different. And I was talking with someone just recently about uh, a tool rental business. And in that business, one of the problems I've seen over and over again is that when they acquire equipment or tools to rent out, they, they acquire them and they capitalize them. But then when they liquidate the old stuff, they don't necessarily dispose of it properly and, and the balance sheet gets off track. And so that in that kind of business, the very first thing that we would want to investigate is how they track inventory and markets value on the balance sheet and just make sure that they're disposing of things correctly because if they recorded as a sale instead of a, a, an equipment liquidation, then not only is the balance sheet incorrect, but the sales are inflated. So, so that would be an example. So based on the type of business you buy, you want to look for the item that has the highest likelihood of uncovering a, a real bad problem. And the reason for that is if you do uncover the problem and it's the problem is there and you decide you don't want to buy, then your investment with your advisors has been minimized right? And as the accountant works through and we go through a couple of these high probability things and it starts to look like there are green lights, 
like, yeah, you know, the financials look good. It, it looks like, you know, things are being done properly. And now you engage the attorney because he is going to start to do certain legal due diligences. And we want to always be cognizant of the fact that we're looking for the problems that may be so severe that we want to pull out of this deal. And if we don't find those, then we start to work on the balance of stuff. And so the accountant usually has finished his part. And, and, and so then you tell the attorney, yeah, it looks like we're good to go to move forward. And so they can start to do the bulk of their work on the actual documentation of the deal. So obviously we're not talking about 10 days here, right? We, we need a, a period of time so that we can work through the financial due diligences and then start to get into the legal stuff more heavily once we have a greater degree of confidence. And so, you know, on the very smallest of deals, little asset sales where there's not a whole lot to, to look at, it still ends up being a few thousand dollars between both parties. In a business of the size that you're talking about, especially if it ends up being a share transaction, the attorney's bill could be $20,000. You could, you could end up easily spending 10 or 15,000 with the accountant. Now, does it all have to be paid in cash up front? Well, not necessarily. And so, you know, there are people out there who talk about how you could find attorneys and accountants who will work on a contingency basis. I, I don't, I have never seen that really work well. Um, and I don't think you want your accountant to work on a contingency basis because then they have an interest in you closing the deal. And really you don't want to have an accountant with an interest in you closing the deal. You want to have an accountant whose only interest is uncovering what's going on, knowing that he'll get paid for his work. Right. And so you can work out terms though with your accountant and your attorney where you say, here's the project and I'm, I will pay you, but here's what I'd like to do is I'd like to arrange it so that some of these payments and billings happen after the deal is closed so that I can pay for your services out of some of the cash flow of the business I'm about to acquire. And so I think by being open and upfront with people about talking about the timelines for payment, um, a lot of these people will deal with you and they will make arrangements with you. You know, um, you don't want to skimp on things like the legal due diligence and the paperwork because here's the, here's the challenge is that if something happened, right. Um, with, let's take electronics assembly. Let's say you assemble a prototype device and somebody uses it and the device fails in some way resulting in injury to a person, right? And then that person's going to hire an attorney who's going to try to figure out who can we sue. And they're going to find as many parties as possible to put on those lawsuits, right? And so if they put your company on that list and they decide to make you a party to this thing, one of the things that lawyers are trained to do is to figure out, is it worth suing this organization? Do they have anything available if we win, right? And if, if, if the answer is no, then the next question is, well, who owns it? And is there any way to get around the corporation? They call that piercing the corporate shield or piercing the corporate veil. So if it turns out that some of the legal work done in setting up your, your entity, whether it's an LLC or S-corp or a C-corp, if something wasn't done correctly 
and, and you end up personally exposed through all this, then it just creates a world of headaches for you, which is why you want to make sure you have the right attorney working on it. Who's going to, you know, plug all those holes. And so if you're buying a, you know, $3 million company to invest, you know, 20, 25 grand to make sure this stuff is buttoned down forever. It's, it, it's well worthwhile, but that is the kind of budget that you probably have to be thinking about. Yeah, that, that's very helpful. Um, and have that in my, my budget and ready, you know, available to as yeah. I'm searching out for businesses. Does, um, how about valuation? Is that included in the accounting or how important is, getting a valuation of the business and where would that fit in the process of making an offer and starting sure. to get into it. So not, not all accountants are going to be people that are qualified or able to do evaluation. They're, in the general public, people are aware of accounting as a profession. Um, there are accounting offices all over the place, you know, people who help you with tax returns and stuff. And, I think it's best to think along a timeline. We have the past, the present, and the future, okay? Accountants are historians. They operate in the past. So an accountant's job is to make sure that the financial statements of a company are an accurate representation of what, in fact, happened in the business. And they're really good at that. They've, over a couple hundred years of evolution, they figured out how to tell the story of what happened in a business on just a couple of pieces of paper, right? So when we are valuing a business, we are looking forward and it's and forward is not necessarily the accountant's strong point. It's actually a completely different kind of uh, professional. It's a finance professional. And most people aren't aware of this kind of person because there's no such thing as a corner finance office, right? Finance people work in the world of M&A, um, merchant banking, um, they're within the walls of big organizations. Um, they're the ones that are making plans about how a company should deploy capital. You know, where's the bet, you know, what should Walmart do? Should they open three new stores or build that new distribution center? Right. Those are the kinds of things that the finance people are working on. And so, um, when it comes to valuation, that that's a finance function. Are you the one who's going to work on it? Well, in my opinion, an entrepreneur who's making a business acquisition needs to be familiar enough to be able to get their head around what it is they're going to pay for a business and why it makes sense. So, you know, the course Business Buyer Advantage is kind of like an intro to that. And if you are using a bank to finance a transaction, they are going to want to get a different expert with their own opinion to validate that the purchase price isn't out of line. And so, you know, I had a, uh, one of the guys who's in the business buyer adventure group here recently uh, did an acquisition and the bank was the one who identified the person who would do the valuation because the bank wanted an independent report on what the business was worth to make sure they weren't lending too much money. And he was able to find out what the report said. And it, they, the evaluator gave a number that was more than what he was paying. So he felt good about that. But um, 
and, and you know, I think he had to pay for it, which is pretty normal as part of the fees that the bank would lay out. But those are the kinds of questions that you would ask when you're creating the relationship with the banker who's going to be doing the loan for you is, is ask them up front what they imagine all the different costs and fees are going to be. And the same thing with the attorney and the accountant, you know, um, if they have been doing these deals on a regular basis, which is the, which are the team members you want, they should be able to, to give you a ballpark. Um, you know, an attorney, if you say to them, you know, have you helped anyone buy a business of this size before? And what kind of legal fees am I looking at? They should be able to give you a ballpark. Yeah, perfect. Um, so as I assemble my team, I can get an idea of ballpark pricing of different types of transactions and what to expect mm. and who to ask. That's perfect. So we got the, uh, the accountant, the attorney and the bank, uh, bank fees for closing. Yeah. Um, so I guess my next question I'm thinking about is, um, where to find a business. So we got bizbysell.com. I think it's probably inundated with a lot of buyers and a lot of sellers that mm -hmm. aren't super serious. And I don't know, it seems a little inefficient to me, but maybe that's just the world of business buying and selling in general, um, waiting a week to hear back from a broker and <laughs> get the NDA put together and, and just to get to the starting point. There, there are a lot of problems with the business for sale market. Um, and it is probably one of the most inefficient markets for anything out there, um, which is what creates opportunity. And so here's the, the first thing you have to get your head around is and there's very little data that is actual hard data that you can, that you, can you can use to, to measure these things. But here's what I've heard people say in my experience holds it out as, as true. About 80% of businesses trade hands without any kind of intermediary. Okay. So if you think about parents selling businesses to children or people selling businesses to their managers or some guy who has a good business and he just asks around at his local rotary club, if someone wants to buy it from him and they make a deal, right? So, a lot of businesses, the majority of them are trading hands without being even in that market. When somebody can't find a business buyer and, and sellers generally do not want to use someone like a broker because a lot of them see the, the fee. They don't want to pay the fee, right? The commission. And so when they can't find a buyer on their own, then they will go to someone like a broker. And if they go to a broker who has sold a business similar to theirs in the past, the broker's first action is going to be to contact that past buyer. You know, when I owned my business brokerage, I sold a driving school to a guy. And then a year and a half later, someone else came to me and wanted to sell a driving school. What do you think I did? You called your guy that owns a driving school. Yeah. I said, Hey, I've got another driving school for sale in a market that you don't have an office in. And the one he bought was a multi multi city business. Like had offices in a few different places. I said, guess what? I've got something that's going to help you fill 
a hole in your map. You don't have an office in this town and this one just came up for sale. So he, he was excited and he bought it. I didn't go, <laughs> you know, I, I, I talked with the seller and I said, you know, we could go and try to advertise this and try to find other people, but you've obviously come to me because you want to sell quickly. And if this guy will agree to a reasonable price, don't you think we should find the person who's going to close as quickly as possible? And the seller agreed. So other people didn't have the opportunity to buy it. And so when somebody ends up having to go to a broker and then the broker doesn't have somebody who wants to buy it right away, then it ends up over on those websites. And so, you know, one of the reasons why I have the group coaching program, Business Buyer Adventure, is to work with people on this very thing because what you do is you identify the industry you want to buy a business in and that lets you then change the whole thing around from being reactive to advertisements of businesses for sale to being someone who now is employing, you know, this is going to be very familiar to you, to become someone who's employing a sales process. Because if you say, I want a certain kind of business that is in this industry with these characteristics, now you can start looking for that business. And you might find that there's only 30 of them in a region close to you, right? Well, that, that's a whole different ballpark. If, if there are 30 potential targets, then you can find out who owns them. You can reach out to those people. You can create uh, communication. You can try to create a relationship. So that when the thing happens that makes them want to sell their business, well, who are they going to sell it to? Remember, they, they try to make the deal on their own. Well, they happen to know someone now who wants to buy their business. And it can, it can allow you to get ahead of the process. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's, um, and they're coming to you and, and you have somebody that is more likely to, because they already know who you are, mm -hmm. um, get further down the path than and a so, complete stranger from a website. And this is where your current BATNA becomes a strength. So if you start doing these things to communicate with people that you are looking to buy something, but you're in the position, the, the employment situation that you're in, it means you don't have to right? And that puts you in the power position for negotiating because every month that you're in that job, uh, you still have an income coming in. And if you manage things properly, you should be accumulating more capital, right? Um, and it, so you get stronger every day that goes by and it may take a while for some of these people to come back as opportunities. Um, and, and when they do, um, then you're in a good position to work out a deal that works for you. And if you can't work out the deal that works for you, you just keep your job. Right, right. Well, excellent. I'm uh, looking through my list here of, of questions and I think we've, we've hit um, basically all of them. Cool. If there's any, any further ones. Yeah. Any other advice or anything else you can think of as we talk that? No, it's, it's to go over really when you're, when you're looking at the type of business you want to buy, um, 
you know, spend some time daydreaming, just think about that kind of business and, and what it would be like to run one or to own one and, and just make sure that that, those ideas and, and, and this is what you, why you have to talk with business owners so quickly in the process, because you want to validate that your ideas are, are true. And this is really what the business is like to run. Uh, you just want to make sure that that fits within your self image, right? The it's, it's got to line up so that when the opportunity comes, that you're going to recognize it as the opportunity that you're, that you've been waiting for so that you can move to, to take advantage of it. But it's, it's got to line up with how you see yourself as a person. And so um, the, the, the self image of where you are in the future, as far as the type of person you are and what you do every day, et cetera, um, it has, it has to move to that point where it matches up with the reality is of being that owner. Otherwise, if there's a, a dissonance between the two, either the deal won't happen or if the deal does happen, there will be problems once you start to run that business. Right. Yeah, that's a really good, um, really good point. So, so I guess um, I'm thinking a little bit more about being proactive of finding a business and getting into the industry that um, identifying an industry that I'm interested in and then I guess networking within an industry and that industry is going to have associations mm -hmm. and different kinds of places where uh, these businesses network with each other within the industry and I guess that's where I could start identifying and meeting uh, people and building that network. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Because there was a, um, I think I did a video on my, on the YouTube channel recently, actually with a guy named Chris Kappas, who's in the trade show business. And that was one of the things we mentioned in the video is that, you know, you go to a trade show in certain industries um, with businesses up to a certain size, the owner may even be present right? You could identify different potential businesses that you'd be interested in, in doing some research on. You could make contact with someone there um, and, and maybe find out who the owner is or, or what have you. But yeah, now, now you're thinking like, it, and, it, and it really is a sales process in reverse. And what you're selling is the opportunity to exit. Because at any, at every business out there at some point, the owner is going to need an opportunity to exit. Right. And so just like in a sales process, if you were trying to sell, you know, a certain piece of machinery, the first thing you would do is, is identify who could use this machinery. Right. And then you would go start making your sales calls. Right. Awesome, Tim. Those are good call. Good questions. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I, I really appreciate uh, being able to chat with you for a bit. Well, I hope that you and your family are having a happy holiday season. And I want to thank, thank you for being part of the audience. And I want to thank you for, for enrolling in Business Buyer Advantage. It's, it's great to hear back from a student. Um, and uh, and I'm, I'm glad you're moving forward with this. Because I can, I can tell you want to make that change. You want to be the master of your own destiny. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely excited. Um, 
excited for it. So um, thank you. And um, it's been really good talking. All right. Thanks. Happy New Year. All right. Happy New Year. Thanks, David.